Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. In this special episode of Acquisition Talk, we'll be listening into a recent discussion recorded for George Mason University's Executive Podcast, where we talk about how coronavirus is impacting government contracting. Enjoy! Today, what we're going to talk about is around the emerging situation with COVID-19, and I have two real experts and influencers in the government contracting community to give us a little bit of uh, info and guidance on how this crisis is impacting the government contracting community right now and what these firms who are now faced with new opportunities and potentially um, new restrictions need to need to learn and need to understand about the uh, the new stimulus package and what is happening in this marketplace. Uh, so today we have Dr. Jerry McGinn and Eric Lofgren joining us. Uh, so gentlemen, why don't you give me a little bit of a background on yourselves and, and a little bit of your history? Great. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. This is Jerry. Uh, So I'm the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting. And I stood at the center starting about a year and a half ago when I joined George Mason uh, University School of Business after leaving the Pentagon, where I was a member of the senior executive service in the Office of Secretary of Defense. And so we've set up the center to be the uh, nexus for government, industry, and academia to collaborate on and address the issues facing the overall half trillion dollar government contracting community. And we do that through research, education, and training. And one of the things I did this year was I brought on a research fellow for the year, um, Eric Lofgren. So Eric, we're really excited to have you and and he's on the podcast as well. Yep, Uh, my name's Eric Lofgren and I came from, as a consultant from the Pentagon for several years doing cost estimates and contractor business system policy and the like, and came over to work for Jerry started a blog and a podcast on acquisition as well. So all in good fun here. Thanks for that on your podcast. Uh, We're just going to get into our major topic of today, which is to talk about how firms in the government contracting industry are being impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, So Jerry, could you give us a little bit of a a overview of the upcoming policy brief the center has is putting out in the next couple of days about the COVID-19 issue. Yeah, well, thanks, Brett. Yeah, we're putting out this, uh, what we're calling an interim re- review today, actually. And in that policy uh, paper, we're, we are looking at the overall response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis that is facing all of us today. And we look specifically at uh, the Defense Production Act, which is uh, something that's been in the news a lot in the last week. Um, and what are the implications of that for the response, um, and there are several aspects there. Secondly, we're looking at the uh, we look at the emergency uh, package uh, funding. There's been a stimulus bill that's being passed today, and a bunch of other funding. Now, how much is available for the response? And we touch on that at high no- high level. Uh, and then the, the third piece is we look at the actual contract information. What is what is actually being solicited by the government that um, it's currently, and what um, what are the potential opportunities going forward? Uh, and then finally, we look at how to how to navigate the crisis. How can companies and government agencies navigate that? What's 
keep government guidance they need to, um, to be following? What are other things they, um, they can do in this situation? Oh, that's great. So then let's, let's try to pull that uh, report apart a little bit and have both of you uh, speak to these different elements. Cause I think there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace right now, uh, just the general public about what these different areas and how they're going to impact government contracting and how they're going to impact just industry as, as a whole. So Jerry, as you mentioned, the defense production act it's been in the news a lot. I think for a lot of Americans, they did not know what that term was until a couple of weeks ago or potentially this last week. You know, actually a lot about this having run the defense production act agency or the, the unit within the Pentagon for a number of years. So can you, Give people a little bit of a snapshot of what the Defense Production Act is and then how it's going to be impacting the government contracting community in the next couple of weeks and months. So the Defense Production Act, um, as you say, it's, it was kind of uh, before this uh, very obscure. There are probably 10 or 15 people in Washington that really know a lot about the Defense Production Act. Uh, and I happen to be one of them. So it was um, it was an act passed in 1950 during the Cold War. And it was really about, you know, some uh, said some authorities that can be used in real national emergencies. And so today is the perfect time for that Defense Production Act to be used, or the DPA, as we call it. Um, and in my old, old role in government, we oversaw the DPA, and there, there are three active titles in the DPA. So um, that's where some of the confusion comes from. So some of those are being used today already, and some of them are the president invoked, and um, and then there's that one piece that he hasn't used. So what I'll do is un- just unpack a little bit in a very uh, top-level way. So. So the Defense Production Act gives the president the authority uh, under one of the titles to distribute contracts or rate contracts to help get things where they need to be. It also it permits the president to allocate resources at, uh, if need be. So what he, what he did last week was he used the invoked Defense Production Act to give the Department of Health and Human Services or HHS the authority to rate contracts uh, and manage the distribution of medical supplies, personal protective equipment and ventilators are a particular focus. So essentially any government contract, any contract with a company that, that was delivering one of those products, it gave the authority for HHS to change the rating of those contracts that um, and put the government order at the top of the line at the top of the list. So it kind of allows them to say, look, we've got to meet the government needs first. And um, that's what that, that authority uh, gave to the president. Anyway, so that, that's the first piece. And, and that is and that HHS didn't have that authority before. The Department of Defense did have that authority and they've used it uh, regularly. I, I don't know if you remember during the Iraq war, there was a lot of focus around uh, IEDs or roadside bombs. And there was these vehicles that were developed called MRAPs or mine resistant anti, I can't remember the exact name, but they were designed to help soldier protection. And the, the, the Defense Production Act Title I um, authority was used to change the contract rating to get those um, systems developed and delivered to soldiers faster. So that, that, that was a perfect example of that. And that's what, what the president did uh, last week. So another authority, um, a part of that allows the president, if he needs to, to essentially direct resources. And that is to be not not to take over a business or own a business, but to um, to say, you know, you know, I, you you company X, you build these ventilators, you company Y, you build this number. And, and so that authority is um, sort of a, a nuclear option or a heavy option where the government would take a direct uh, leadership directing role. And the president hasn't invoked this. Um, and that's what some have called for him to do. 
The administration have ar- has argued that th- that is not necessary. Uh, they're already working with industry hand and glove and the state and local authorities. People are falling over themselves trying to help. They don't feel it's necessary. So, um, so that's sort of, uh, that's the main thing. And then there are other, a couple other provisions, Defense Protection Act, but I'll stop there if you have a, any questions on what I just uh, outlined. Well, I think what you, what you spoke to that, what I'm seeing is, you know, you scan social media and you see the different reporters covering the topic is, and I think you, you talked about it in Title II, is why has the, the federal government and why has the administrative branch not come in and told Ford, told General Motors, told 3M, that all production now needs to be geared towards the production of ventilators, um, PPEs, masks, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I guess the uh, the answer to that is that the administration doesn't feel it's necessary to do that because they're doing it in partnership with the companies and the companies are not saying, no, we're not going to do this. They're, they're, they're saying, okay, how do we do this? So the administration's view is why would we, as a, a government, take over something? Because what that, what that would do is then create a new learning curve where, the government's in charge and who's going to be that person and all this kind of things, which would create um, some disruption in and of itself. So, and the government, there's a, you know, this is a Republican administration. Republicans are more reticent to have government run things, you know, like, you know, like the experience of Obamacare, um, you know, is, is close on some of the, the might be on their minds. You know, the government is not necessarily, the government takes a, needs to take a leading role and play an, an orchestrating role to be the conductor on, on these efforts. And I think that's what the administration is uh, attempting to do, but they don't feel they need to, be, you know, take over, in other words. Jerry, does a firm have the ability to to not comply? So if the if Title II is, is implemented, can a, can a firm respectfully say, no, we're not going to do that? Uh, they wouldn't have a choice. The law, you know, if, if they change the contract rating, the companies have to comply with, with, those, with those changes. Uh, and if it were the government were to take, you know, use that part of DPA, they wouldn't have a choice. But again, the president, um, the administration doesn't feel they need to do that. Um, because the government, the companies have been, you know, working night and day to try to help. All right. And then with that, let's uh, switch gears and talk about the new federal guidelines and guidances that uh, OMB and other offices are starting to put out for government contractors right now. And Eric, can you speak to what these new guidelines are and the exact types of guidance that firms are receiving right now? Sure. Yeah. And the OMB guidance, they pretty much put out some general language saying, Yes, we want to maximize teleworking, and they even allow the government to modify contracts if the contracts do not allow teleworking, so long as it's so long as it's consistent with the work. So, you know, production facilities you can't necessarily uh, telework for a lot of that. But for most of the government contracts are actually in the service side, and so a lot of services can be turned on to teleworking. But the government doesn't have any kind of policy purview over whether the contractors are able to telework or not in their own internal guidance. Uh, But then there's also other stipulations such as OMB talked about um, excusable delays are permissible if contractors have to be quarantined. And then there's equitable adjustments will be allowed, but those are going to be done on a case-by-case basis. So for example, if contractors and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Um, Ellen Ward called defense contractors critical infrastructure. And so they must continue working to the extent possible under the existing contracts. And if that results in additional costs for preventative safety measures, there might be equitable adjustments related to that. 
And finally, there's also um, a FAR Part 18.202, which allows for defense or recovery of certain events. So that allows additional flexibilities to uh, contract officers to kind of go out and get things done. So the, the overall intent of these efforts, the both uh, the Secretary, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Sustainment, Ellen Lord's memo, as well as this um, OMB guidance was to uh, give flexibility for the government agencies as well as for the contractors so they can continue working, not get caught up in back and forth about you're not meeting the exact terms of this contract. So therefore, you know, I'm stopping, I'm stopping work and for the convenience of the government. So um, it does not have the force of law with some of the trade associations have con- con- raised concerns about, but the intent of this is like, look, we need to, everyone needs to be keep working. Let's find ways to do it and let's not penalize companies uh, and let's give uh, agencies the flexibility to find ways to work in this really crazy environment. So the, the, those are a couple of guidance things. And an initial one was DOD put out a um, guidance on progress payments, which essentially is a way to increase cash flow. Could you speak to uh, more on this idea of, I don't want to call it a pastor of costs, but as I understand what you're talking about, Eric, is regardless of potentially the contract type, if it was fixed price or time and materials, if if the delay or if the COVID-19 is potentially causing an increase in costs, that there will be a good faith effort to relook at contract structures. Is that how I'm hearing this? Basically, yeah. If, if the contractors are still operating because they're critical infrastructure and then they have to take additional measures, that would be an equitable adjustment to even a fixed price contract. You can kind of go back in and modify that after the fact. But that will, again, be done on a case-by-case basis. So there's no blanket policy necessarily to say, yes, we're going to check the box on any claim that a contractor says, right? So there's going to have to be cost data probably and and back up there with respect to equitable adjustments. It's very interesting right now to see that they're actually willing to do these equitable adjustments. Yeah, the, 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 we're trying to you know maintain as much government uh, you know as much ability to keep working you know given this none none of these scenarios were envisioned in the contracts under most uh, most of the current uh, work hundred or workforce is operating. So yeah, and the the government is. As Jerry was saying, uh, with the progress payments, they're increasing that. That will also help contractors, especially in fixed price contracts that are quite large and required a good deal of capital. So there was talk a couple of years ago about reducing progress payments, which is essentially allowing for certain types of funds to to flow to the contractor before delivery of fixed price contracts. And that Set at 80%. They were talking about reducing it to 50%. But then with this coronavirus, they're now increasing the progress payment so that contractors can be able to get paid earlier, even before delivery of some of the products and services. And so for the largest firms, that's growing from 80% to 90%. And for smaller firms, is growing from 90% to 95%. So that should be able to help the, cl- the cash flow for some of these uh, firms here that are operating under the conditions. And all, all these guidances are for the current crisis. This, these are not permanent changes in any kind of way. One thing I'd, I'd like to pull that thread a little bit with, with both of you, because one of the things we saw just anecdotally looking around the ZC area during the last government shutdown is quite a few firms actually did not seem to have the, the cash on hand to survive what was a six week reduction in cash flow. And so if you look at this crisis, if you look at how this could be impacting government contracting without some of these efforts, do you really see that being a critical 
delay in the government contracting. And we're going to see a lot of firms struggling to make ends meet every, even just making payroll for the coming weeks. I mean, it depends. I mean, uh, a lot of the, def- the the defense contractors they're continuing to work largely um, with with disruption, but you know they're continuing to work. It is it is the smaller firms that are on service contracts where they're disrupted from being able to perform their work that you know could, is having the impact. Right, about fifty to seventy percent usually of defense prime dollars kind of flow down through that supply chain. And they might be a little bit more susceptible to these disruptions. If they're not able to work, they might not be able to collect on, on some of those payments. And then it, I, to, to pull your thread about the, um, the last shutdown. So the issue has to do with, you know, cash reserves and, and mm-hmm. the company, the larger cash reserves are going to have. And that's just a general practice. I mean, we found in the last um, shutdown, there were some smaller companies that were well positioned. You know, that had better business practices, they were able to weather that storm better. But some of them were, you know, were crushed immediately. I'm not sure if either of you have kind of insights into that. I, it's something that I've started to be very curious about is you're starting to see a lot of these commercial firms that despite them doing very well financially over the last couple of years, actually didn't have the cash reserves and are now in quite danger, you know, from a liquidity standpoint. Do you have a sense of how the government contracting industry is looking? I mean, besides just the general, it's going to vary by firm by firm. But is that a concern for firms right now that you would see that there are quite a few who actually probably don't have significant cash reserves? I have, I have not seen that in, in, in the, the government contracting industry. I've seen that you know, it's more, you know, where it comes in are, you know, like the small coffee shops, the retail travel industry. I haven't seen it um, in government contracting yet. Yeah, one interesting thing to look for perhaps next month is when some of the contractors start reporting their earned value management reports. And you'll that will be kind of an early indication to see exactly what are the burn rates, how much money are the contractors able to continue spending and operating? Because it seems like a lot of the uh, you know payments and contracting mechanisms are still working to an extent. Government's still obligating dollars and spending dollars as they obligated. So I think a lot of a lot of that will be looking at the data and seeing, okay, were the contractors able to continue work at the level that they expected, or were there drop-offs in their own labor or their supplier labor? And you'll be able to see that kind of breakout between direct labor and then their material uh, or uh, subcontracts. I think that's going to be really interesting. And I'll have to start taking a look at what that burn value chart is for these companies. I think that's going to be really telling in those coming days, exactly to your point, Eric, of, of how they're doing. It was surprising to me in the in the shutdown, how many firms just talking to friends in the industry that they had great buying opportunities because a lot of firms were saying they didn't have the cash flow to make payroll. Uh, and so there was an opportunity for acquisition during that time. Yeah. One of the things I'm now curious is obviously we're, we're recording this on, on Wednesday, March 25th. And last night, the Senate and the White House came to an agreement on a quite large stimulus package, right? The largest in the history of the, in the federal government in our history of this country, $2 trillion that kind of earmarked And so we want to talk about is how is that stimulus package going to be impacting the federal contracting marketplace? Well, we think it's going to, you know, it's going to have a big impact. One of the things we've done in this report, and it's really not conducive to talk about it in any kind of depth on the on a podcast, but the report will show the the government uh, contracts uh, sort of are 
are lagging a little bit in terms of, you know, it takes a while to get things on contract. And so right now, for instance, there are 16 active opportunities for COVID-19 response from HHS, FEMA, Department of Defense, Veteran Affairs. Um, most of those are actual for um, what we call sources sought or requests for information to help define the marketplace. They'll quickly turn to solicitations for, for proposals, but they're not there yet. So they're essentially um, government is buying on existing contracts and we roll, roll up some of that in, in particularly one big contract um, for ventilators uh, um, that uh, Eric identified in his, his work. But it takes a while for that to, to go from appropriation to actual contract. Um, and, but I mean, we just looked at the bill briefly today and, you know, uh, top level three, there's three billion dollars appropriated for the Defense Production Act fund. Now I used to run, I ran the fund, and they were about a hundred million dollars. There's about a hundred million dollars in there, and um, for that to go from hundred million dollars to three billion dollars is like holy crap, you know. And so there's going to be a lot of projects coming out of that, which is another part of Defense Production Act, um, what we call Title Three, that does grants and um, purchases and so on to to help rebuild. These are sort of medium term efforts to build up, you know, add excess capacity for ventilator production. Add um, uh, rebuild plants to do um, uh, parts of pharmaceutical manufacturing in the U.S. So we're not doing generic um, antibiotics in China anymore. So that th- those kind of products, those are going to be right now. My old colleagues are working furiously on those. I think so. You'll start seeing those come, but they're going to take they're going to take weeks to develop. So, uh, but there's a lot of money. But Erica, I don't know if you want to make any top level points on what we're doing. Yeah. So I'll just start with the emergency funding. There were two emergency funding packages that were already approved and those were for about 10 billion dollars total um, about five billion of that went to the National Institutes of Health and uh, the CDC for that um, for the response the forthcoming stimulus of two trillion includes a lot of kinds of direct payments and, and small business loans 350 billion dollars in business loans unemployment is 250 billion 500 billion in distressed companies. But then there's going to be about $242 billion in supplemental that will go to some of the agencies. So for Veterans Health, um, $11 billion for vaccines at HHS, and then $12 billion for the Pentagon, including that $3 billion for the DPA. And I'd just like to echo from uh, Jerry that it does take some time to get these funds onto contracts. So a lot of the funding, Army Medical Command, they get about $12 billion a year. HHS total has 87 billion of discretionary. That was just appropriated from last year, but it takes these, a lot of these uh, line items are already programmed to go somewhere else. So you have to kind of be able to shift out of, out of those plans and it takes some time. And so what we've seen is as of yesterday, there was a, a little over $200 million obligated for COVID-19. And most of that, 148 million, went to a single contract that was a subsidiary of Johnson and Johnson, and they were doing new antiviral therapeutic work for COVID. And why they were able to be a little bit faster and get that amount of money quickly was because HHS already had an existing contract with with the company, and it was an other transactions contract, and that's one of these contracts that's outside of the federal acquisition regulation. It has less regulations that have to go along with getting that awarded. It's usually for prototyping and other types of advanced development for non-traditional contractors. And so this was modified on March 20th 
before COVID, but for the most part, it might take some time to see these contracts start ramping up. And we'll, we'll be trying to trace, you know, for these contracts coming out for COVID, how long did it take them to go from that sources sought to the pre-solicitation and then finally award and getting the money out? As Jerry was saying, it might take some time and we want to be able to see what kinds of contracts permit you to move faster. And then um, how can all of this new funding kind of flow to the contracts to get things done quickly? Yeah, what Eric was saying, you know, the, the, one of the key things is, you know, how, to, how fast can it get there to where it's needed? And that, that's what we're going to start tracing because uh, there are different ways the government can do things. Um, Defense Production Act is one of them. It's not always the fastest, but then there's, there's other transactions. There's, you know, there's buying off GSA schedules. There's other kind of ways you can get things uh, quickly, but, it, you know, but it, it can't be done overnight in most cases. Yeah, and we went through and we classified some of the spending from the government on COVID. So there was about 15 million in medical equipment. Ventilators were about 13 million. For uh, medical tests and panels, it was only about 5 million. But then we also saw a lot of IT kind of starting to come in, especially from Social Security Administration, where they're saying, because of the demands of COVID for teleworking, we need new equipment, we need, we need IT service support and the like. And so those are some of the kinds of uh, expenditures we're seeing. Personal protective equipment was only about two and a half million being spent. So we expect to see as these contracts start coming up, these numbers to start growing rapidly. Do you have a sense if you look at what these contracts, the current ones, and then what they're projecting to be moving forward, if we were to compare this for big primes versus set aside companies, do you think there's going to be that still target of 25% of these contracts being allocated for 8A and set aside firms? Or do you think we're going to be relaxing that regulation to get best value in the marketplace? It depends on the contract vehicle they use. Um, and I think uh, the things they can waive, they'll, they'll waive. You know, this is very much an all hands on deck scenario to get the quickest things that, you know, they can. So, you know, I think that depends on the contract, but they'll, if they need to, they'll, they'll waive prisons where they can. Some of the solicitations have been small business set aside still. So yeah, we're still seeing some small business set aside being handled through the COVID as well. Do you think there's going to be a marketplace or, or quite a few of these contracts potentially going through the public private route through these large companies, maybe like a miter where you're got potentially can get prototyping done quicker where they're able to send money faster? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think what I think we'll see more of, and I've actually talked with a company about this is um, there, there are things like consortium they're doing, you know, bringing non-traditionals into defense space or into the government contracting space. I think you'll see more of those kind of companies. Like, like I was talking with one company yesterday that does space um, exploration, and they're actually looking to see if they can prototype a ventilator. Um, and, you know, they're putting together, you know, a response to one of the one of the white paper solicitations that's already out there. So um, so I think you'll see more of that where folks will use a consortium or or uh, places like Defense Innovation Unit, um, DIU um, or AFWorks, these other kind of already focus on innovation efforts where they're focused on non-traditionals to do that. I don't know this the, um, the medical space as well, but I'm sure they're might be efforts there. The other place I would look is there are, there are a number of companies, again, this is in the small space. So having a small business set aside does not necessarily mean a bad thing, but the, um, uh, cause there are a lot of companies that support like special operations that do 
deployable hospitals, deployable um, medical equipment, and they make they make they'll make ventilators or make masks for for use by special operations forces. Those things, the, the, modifying those for for this guy's situation seems very straightforward. More straightforward, frankly, than than um, having automobile manufacturers modifying their their production line. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh- how about we, we end with one last comment. The Undersecretary for, for Acquisition, uh, Ellen Lord, has come out with a statement that defense, and we talked about this earlier, is going to be designated as a central industry. Um, can you kind of talk about what, what does that actually mean for, for firms on the day-to-day and what potentially a manager or an employee can expect once their firm and their, their job has been classified as that? That's a, good, that's a great question. So essentially, that um, again, that's guidance that, and it follows the guidance given by I think DHS um, defining the critical infrastructure. And what that does is essentially it, it it gives the companies the ability to say to their government customers that hey, our work is essential, and uh, we should keep working. And the, it gives the government ability to support, uh, you know, to encourage them to keep working. And this is particularly relevant in states where there um, uh, where there's kind of essentially a lockdown. Like California, New York, um, where their radar faci- radar plants or um, aircraft production plants, it, it gives those companies flexibility where they're you know when, when it's safe to um, main uh, be able to argue to maintain production or maintain business. Yeah, we've seen um, Textron they furloughed about seven thousand workers. The Washington Post was reporting that there's some consternation at Bath Iron Works about. Uh, some of the workers still going onto the job, and it seems like uh, there's some worry there. But for the most part, it seems like most companies are committed to continuing production and staying open and supporting government. Yeah, and I, I, one one thing that uh, that comes out of the point that Eric was making, where you're seeing the biggest impact in, in this in the government contracting industry are those companies that have s- substantial commercial business. Like a Textron, a Boeing, particularly this is more of the aviation companies that um, you know Honeywell that have commercial businesses. So um, they're much more impacted. You know the commercial aviation industry obviously is dramatically. So that so you'll see more uh, impacts there than than pure defense plays. Yep, and uh, the, the operations and support kind of costs that go along with a lot of these uh, the aviation industry is pretty heavy on the back end. You make a good amount of money from selling a new jet, but then uh, supporting it through its life cycle is also a, a big source of cash flow. And so with many less flights going on, that, that does hurt those companies more heavily than it would a pure defense play. Interesting. That's going to be really uh, fascinating to see this play out in the next couple of weeks. Um, I want to thank both of you for taking time to talk to us and being a part of our soft opening of our podcast. Uh, Jerry, we have scheduled a webinar in the next couple of days to do a deeper dive into these issues. So could you give a quick plug for that? Absolutely. Thanks, Brett. I was going to encourage you to do that. So, yes, we're having a webinar webinar on Monday, the 30th at 2 p.m. And you can go to our website at um, www.govcon.gmu.edu and uh, you can s- sign up for it there. Uh, and it's a free web um, uh, webinar. Our dean, uh, Maury Piper, will introduce the session. I will be a panelist. Uh, Eric is going to be a panelist. 
um, and we're going to have an expert um, um, of uh, that on the legal side that knows government contracting well. That's Jim Fontana, who's on our advisory board. Another lawyer who's been in government and in uh, in the legal profession, Jeff Bialos, uh, and then um, a CEO of a GovCon company and a close friend of mine that made the mistake of helping encourage me to coming to George Mason, uh, Dr. John Hillen, uh, the CEO of Everwatch Solutions. So he's, uh, uh, he'll be joining us for that on Tuesday, on Monday at two o'clock. Monday at two o'clock. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we, you know, registrations have signed, have already started. So we've about half full right now. So go ahead and, and encourage everyone to, to come and listen. It's going to be a pretty interesting event to, to hear these real experts give their opinions on, on what we're going to be facing in the DC area in the coming weeks and months. And look for our report. It's going to go out. Um, it'll be going out today. Great. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.